0: Some of you oldies would remember uh, Mike Siegel. Remember him on KVI radio in Seattle every afternoon? If you're old, you would have remembered this. Mike would always sign off with the words, be good to yourself and the world will be good to you. It would sound like a happy bromide that nobody should disagree with, but what in the world did it mean? (laughs) Why would you expect everyone to treat you nicely just because you're treating yourself nicely. You could make a pretty good case for the opposite, that if you're really being nice to yourself kind of in a narcissistic way that you get a little pushback. People aren't going to want to be um, kind of on your train to help you do everything that you want to do for yourself. But I have to admit that I hate to be hated, and if you get some ex- advice like this, you know, maybe you want to take it. I'm not likely to ever go out of my way to get more enemies. anybody feel the same way? I mean, I like to smooth things over between people. I like to be the nice and reasonable one in the room, just like you. Well, most of you. Anyway, in today's passage from John 15, where we are studying the book of John, we've been in this for, you know, almost a year. This has been, uh, I think, quite an adventure in an amazing book of the Bible. But in this passage today, Jesus is going to talk about friends and enemies, about love and hate. Um, And amazingly, this is the night before Jesus is crucified, and it's going to be a gruesome death. Jesus is very aware of that, back shredded by whips, spit running down his cheeks, um, thorny crown perforating his scalp. Just think about the spikes in his wrists and his ankles hanging in, in agony and naked and mocked and shamed. But here on this night before, you know, scant hours before all of this happens, before he enters the jaws of hatred, he's actually going to talk about the joy he has. And this is not normal. Jesus is not normal. His reaction is so different from everybody I know, where somehow on this night before he finds joy. And this is why we need this passage. We need to be more like Jesus in this way. And one reason is because there is more pain ahead of us. In fact, recent events have made it clearer and clearer that the American experiment uh, is collapsing and the easy days for the Christian church are behind us. Uh, Just look around, you see this anti-Christian bias everywhere. You see it in the the media, of course. They have co-opted the academia before I even went to college. which was you know, at least 10 years ago. Uh, and you have the tech giants kind of piling on and then the entertainment complex is notorious for not really giving a beautiful view of what it means to be a real Bible-believing Christian. And even the courts really seem to be moving the other way. So Jesus, fully aware of everything we're gonna be facing, calls us to courage, but even more he calls us to joy. Joy. How many of you have next-door neighbors or coworkers who have lived and worked next to you maybe for years that you have never really had a significant spiritual conversation with? We talked last week about significant areas in our lives where we are disappointed, and I think one of them for a lot of Christians is that uh, we're embarrassed for ourselves by how seldom we share the truth about Jesus with people. Uh, it's possible that we keep our faith to ourselves in order to avoid hostility. Um, someone will think we're one of those Jesus freaks or an um, intolerant Bible thumper or a cultural dinosaur. I think the the worst one we try to avoid is to be thought of as a hater of some kind, you know, a judgmental hater. And we seem completely and I say we because I'm guilty here as much as anyone, we seem completely unaware of the biblical paradox that the right kind of opposition is a path to the, well to an amazing kind of joy we haven't learned well enough to anticipate happiness when hated I want to say that the years ahead for the church are going to be the happiest the most joyful times we ever had well uh, avoiding unhappiness is one of the reasons we try to avoid it. This is not, but this is not some sort of sadism, by the way. This is just simply believing what Jesus said. Have we forgotten the 10th beatitude? Where Jesus said, blessed or happy are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great and he says, because, he gives you a reason. It's not in spite of, it's because of something. It's not in spite of the suffering, it's because of the reward. For great is your reward in heaven. And then Jesus goes on in the next, in the next verses. I didn't put them up here on the, uh, on the PowerPoint, but it says, you are the salt of the earth. So obviously it's that. We, are, we have an a duty to the world. And that's why we have this connection. It should be like salt and meat or something else that's supposed to accomplish something. Uh, but he says, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. Of course, he's talking here about witness. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. And then he says, let your light shine before others so they can see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven this is all from Matthew 5 now today I'm, I'm very concerned for any of us including myself who has hidden his lamp under a basket for fear of provoking opposition because greater pressure than what we've ever faced is coming and will be unavoidable if we stick with abide with Jesus So we come to this passage that's going to be talking about the world hating Christ's disciples. And what I want us to do here initially is to um, carefully observe the order of the three key ideas in this passage. And so we're thinking about being braver before the world, but you're not going to get much braver in confronting the world about Jesus and risking their hatred until you go back a couple of steps. And we're going to be seeing how this lays out. You have to start as far as joy goes, you have to start from the inside out because the experience of joy flows from the heart, from the center of your soul where you are content and at home with Jesus as the all-sufficient vine. You are abiding. You're staying connected to Him. You're not like the branch I brought last week that I cut off my, my, you know, this branch from my grapevine. You see what it's like now? This was actually the next day it looked like this. You know, the dried up, you know, ready to be thrown into the fire. So you can take, I could crumple this, but I don't want to make room for the uh, janitorial staff. But it'll just go to powder. There's nothing to it. Uh, And that's what we talked about last week. And so we come to this, we start with the abiding. Um, which is where your soul is at home with Jesus and satisfied with him and drawing from him and that's where the life comes from and all the things that you need for fruit and love and joy and peace and and souls that are reached with the gospel and the loving of one another, all these things. But only after you've abided can you then radiate outward to the infinitely less threatening ministries. Let me explain what I'm saying by that with the church and the world You know, when you are dwelling with the vine, you are already encountering the most threatening presence possible the living and holy God. And this is made possible, your connection with Him is made possible through the blood of Christ, which has dealt with the wrath of God, so that it's obvious that God has reached out to you in love because He is satisfied for all your sins. And so you've already dealt with the most threatening presence possible through the ministry of Christ to you. And so you abide in Christ and then outward from that comes this, this ability to minister to each other in love, so that's the loving part. And then number three, then the hatred part. To face the hatred of a hostile world which is not gonna enjoy the things that you might have to say to them and the way that you represent God. So now acknowledge that Jesus doesn't you know, say number one, number two, but the logic of this is compelling. Abiding is first, that's you and the vine, and then loving, that's you and the other branches, and then hated, that's you and the world. Now let's go with step one. So let's go through this passage. Uh, We're starting with uh, abiding, the branch with the vine. Now you will never be happy when you're hated till you learn to remain, to abide, to be satisfied with and dependent on the ever-loving Savior, Jesus Christ. And we spent our time last week talking about this great metaphor, the vine, the branches, the gardener, our Father. Uh, Jesus is with his men, the eleven. Uh, they have just left the upper room as he continues what are commonly called the uh, farewell discourses. Now, rather than going all the way back to verse 1 where we started last week, let, I want us just to pick up with verse 9 where Jesus begins to unpack the metaphor in terms of love. Not just remain in me and in my word, but now he says remain in my love. So here we go with verse nine. I have loved you the way the Father has loved me. Um, And if you took five minutes even to reflect on how much and in what ways the Father loves the divine Son, uh, you would run out of superlatives. Every dimension possible would come to mind uh, but that is how Jesus loved his disciples, as well as each of us. And he says, that love, I want you to remain in it, abide in it, don't leave it, don't doubt it, Don't just feed on it, bask in it, be satisfied in it, be convinced of it. And then verse 10, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. And the command he's about ready to give, of course, the main command is to love each other. So if you want to show that you are remaining in my love, then the way you do that is by loving others. Because what do we know from the book of 1 John? We love because he first loved us. So we know all of that. But here's how he ends this. He said, just as I've kept my father's commands, including going to the cross in the next hours and keep remaining in his love. Now remember that this whole section is about abiding in the vine so that you can produce fruit for the Father's glory, and producing fruit is what you do if you are keeping Christ's commands. The mega command, as I've just said in this farewell discourse, is loving others as Jesus loved us. Uh, So it's not hard to see how abiding in Christ's love sets forth the inner condition for dealing with fellow branches and confronting a lost world. You first have to abide, though. You have to stay connected. You have to depend on. You have to enjoy the sufficiency and the acceptance of the indwelling Savior. Abide just means this. Don't abandon Jesus when it's hard. The command itself implies that there are going to be pressures on you where you would not possibly continue. So um, we know that apart from him, uh, we can't produce anything. So we have to stay with him, all the fruit toward God, or any fruit of love toward Christian sisters, and brothers, any fruit of carrying the gospel to a hungry world. And this is kind of an obvious thing to say, but if you're not very satisfied with Jesus, why would you even bother to confront the world with believing in him if you're not satisfied with him yourself? You see how this all goes together? Why are you going to risk wounds and mockery for something that's not even satisfying your own soul. So abiding means knowing and basking in the fact that you're totally loved, so you're one of the disciples. This would mean knowing their master will have their back no matter what they face. It means that they will, he will never be casual uh, when they are peppered with hatred, that what hurts them would hurt him. Like when Jesus confronted the persecutor, Paul, on the road to Damascus. What did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus moves toward the cross that night, and he too is obediently remaining in the Father's love, and this is the source of joy on this night, the joy of obedience, the joy of knowing the Father loves him no matter what. Even on a day of suffering when he would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows he abides in the Father's love. And so he goes on to verse 11. Read this. I've told you these things so that the joy I have can be in you and your joy might become full. Jesus is teaching them where to get joy. The joy that cannot be removed from the worst the world can do to you comes from the love of Jesus. His joy comes from knowing he's loved by the Father. Their joy will come because of the master's love for them. Same as your joy. And so when hostile people are saying that God has abandoned you because they figure you've got the, the God thing totally wrong, that you know God must be disappointed in you because you're such a hater and a whatever, then where does the joy come from? The joy then is dependent on listening to that voice where you abide, where he abides in you and he says to you morning, noon, and night, you are totally loved. Now I've got three stories for us today. They're, they're not stories of how I battled the world bravely and joyfully. In fact, uh, they're not even about me. Uh, in fact, most of my witness, sad to admit, has been weak and what someone called our guilty silence so I'll I need this message. Anyway, the first is a story you probably know because you're in it. Uh, Pete Hamill, a longtime New York street columnist, uh, now, he's, now he's 85 years old, but anyway, he wrote one of his many short stories for the New York Post in, in uh, 1971. It was a takeoff from some 50s street lore, it became a hit song, and then a movie adaptation. I want you to meet Vingo. Here's the story. They were going to Fort Lauderdale, the girl remembered later. There were six of them, three boys and three girls, and they picked up the bus at the old terminal on 34th Street, carrying sandwiches and wine in paper bags, dreaming of golden beaches and the tides of the sea as the gray, cold spring of New York vanished behind them. Spring break. Vingo was on board from the beginning. As the bus passed through Jersey and into Philly, they began to notice that Vingo never moved. He sat in front of the young people, his dusty face masking his age. Dressed in a plain brown fitting, or brown, ill-fitting suit, his fingers were stained from cigarettes and he chewed the inside of his lip a lot, frozen into some personal cocoon of silence. Somewhere outside of Washington, deep into the night, the bus pulled into a Howard Johnson's and everybody got off except Vingo. He sat rooted in his seat and the young people began to wonder about him, trying to imagine his life. Ah, uh, perhaps he was a sea captain, or maybe he had run away from his wife, Oh uh, maybe he had, or, or he could be an old soldier going home, and when they went back to the bus, the girl sat beside him and introduced herself. We're going to Florida, the girl said brightly. You going that far? I don't know, Vingo said. I've never been there, she said. I hear it's beautiful. It is, he said quietly, as if remembering something he had tried to forget. You live there? Oh, I did some time there in the Navy, Jacksonville. Want some wine, she said. He smiled and took the bottle and took a swig. He thanked her and retreated again into a silence. After a while, she went back to the others, and Vingo nodded in sleep. In the morning, they awoke outside another Howard Johnson's, and this time Vingo went in. The girl insisted that he join them. He, he seemed very shy and ordered black coffee and smoked nervously as the young people chattered about sleeping on beaches. When they went back to the bus the girl sat with vingo again and after a while slowly painfully with great hesitation he began to tell his story he had been in jail in new york for the past four years and now he was going home are you married i don't know you don't know she said well when i was in the can by the way can is the jail not the bathroom anyway when i was in the can I wrote to my wife, he said. I told her. I said, Martha, I understand if you can't stay married to me. I I told her that. I said I was going to be away a long time, and that if she couldn't stand it, the kids kept asking questions. If it hurt her too much, well, she could just forget me, get a new guy. She's a wonderful woman, really something. And and forget about me. I, I told her she didn't have to write me or nothing, and she didn't. Not for three and a half years. And you're going home now, not knowing? Yeah, he said, shyly. Well, last week, when I was sure the parole was coming through, I wrote her. I told her that if she had a new guy, I understood. But if she didn't, if she would take me back, she should let me know. We used to live in this town, Brunswick, just before Jacksonville, and there's a big oak tree just as you come into town, a famous, very famous tree, huge told her that if she'd take me back, she should put a yellow handkerchief on the tree and I'd get off and come home. And if she didn't want me, forget it. No handkerchief and I'd go through. Wow, the girl said, wow. She told the others and soon all of them were in it, caught up in the approach of Brunswick. Looking at the picture, Vingo showed them of his wife and three children. The woman, handsome in a plain way, the children still unformed in the correct much-handled snapshot. And now they were 20 miles from Brunswick, and the young people took over window seats on the right side, waiting for the approach of the great oak tree, and Vingo stopped looking, tightening his face into the ex-con's mask, as if fortifying himself against still another disappointment. And then it was 10 miles, then five, and the bus acquired a dark hushed mood, full of silence, of absence, of of lost years, of of a woman's plain face, of the sudden letter on the breakfast table, of the wonder of the children uh, or the iron bars of solitude. And then suddenly all of the young people were up out of their seats screaming and shouting and crying and doing small dances, shaking clenched fists in triumph and exultation, all except Vingo, Bingo sat there stunned, looking at the oak tree. It was covered with yellow handkerchiefs, 20 of them, 30 of them, maybe hundreds. A tree that stood like a banner of welcome, blowing and billowing in the wind, turned into a gorgeous yellow blur by the passing bus. And as the young people shouted, the old Khan rose from his seat, holding himself tightly, made his way to the front of the bus to go home. For us, the cross is such a tree, a tree that stands as a banner of welcome. You are loved like that a million times over. Long before your father or mother or siblings or teachers or your church or anyone else touched you in a loving way or in a wounding way, before long before you were either praised or criticized, that voice was always there. I love you with an everlasting love, just like the Father has loved me. Is this not enough to fuel an unquenchable joy? Now, if your joy is not anchored in the unending love of Jesus, then you can easily cave in when confronted by the world's hatred. It will mean too much to you to be liked, to be admired. You will lose your joy if you need joy from the world's smiles. But now before you even deal with the world, you must deal with your fellow branches, all loving them, all of them not necessarily all that easy to love. If you aren't abiding in the vine, you are going to fail as well in this. Why? Because you will require too much. From their love and from their approval you will run around begging to be admired or to be affirmed or praised or recognized or, or or to find gratitude from them if you're if you're not safe and joyful in the love of Christ then you're not free really to love without expectations and so you won't have the courage to serve ungrateful people or humble yourself before unpleasant people or come anywhere close to the kind of love you get from Jesus, outrageously beautiful, self-sacrificing love. So here's step two, loving, branch to branch. Now see, Jesus is moving from the center outward. Here now is the fruit that delights God as he watches his little children loving each other and learning to do that, abiding at the core of your soul, and then enables you to express from your well-loved soul love to your fellow branches, extending to them the love that you have all received from Jesus. As I mentioned in what John said in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. So I want you to look at verses 12 through 17. This is my command. Love and keep on loving one another the way I've loved you. And then Jesus spells out how he loved them, two things especially. The first is his willingness to endure pain and loneliness, even death, for the sake of others. Verse 13, nobody can love someone more deeply than this, that he puts his life on the line, lays down his life for his friends. Now, by the way, Jesus isn't putting this above loving your enemies, which would you know, seem to be even harder. He's just saying that the many ways and degrees of loving our friends take their deepest form when the need of the friend demands that we set aside us our comforts, our delights, our welfare, our own future, our own needs and desires, even our own life. And that's how Jesus loved these men, very literally. Now in the next verse, he makes it very clear that they are the friends he's talking about. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do the things I command you. He's not saying you become friends by doing, it's just this, this shows that you are my friends. Now friend here is, please, is not used in our usual way. Some people talk to me and they say, you know, Jesus is my buddy. Uh, listen to this, think about the way we use friend. It's like two buddies who are equals out fishing on a fishing rig, pulling in steelheads. It's not like one of these guys is gonna be commanding the other to do anything. I mean, they're just working together or playing together, whatever they are doing when they're fishing. Uh, with me, when I go fishing, I don't catch anything, so I don't know what that's called, work or play. After a while, it's not a real happy experience. But anyway, but he says, you are my friends if you do the things I command you. See, that's a different kind of relationship. And I should point out something that you may never have noticed, that neither God nor Jesus is ever called the friend of anyone. You say, wait a minute, Abraham was called the friend of God, Moses was called the friend of Yeah, they were called God's friends, but not the reverse, And so here Jesus calls his men his friends. The word friend here is from a common word for love. And so basically he's saying, you are the ones I love when he says friend. Not like you're my equal or, you know, like we're buddies fishing. Um, You prove to be the ones I love if you carry out my agenda, if you do what I tell you. And above all, he means loving each other. In fact, that's how all the world will know that they are his disciples by the fact that they do love each other. And then Jesus goes on to describe a second way that he shows his love to them, that is his friendship. He reveals his heart and plans and his truth to them. So he says in verse 15, I don't call you servants anymore because a servant isn't brought into his master's confidence. Instead, I've addressed you as friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from my father. I don't have any secrets from you. Now think of the amazing access given to these men into the thinking of God, like Abraham was and like Moses was, friends of God. Now you you can tell a servant what to do, but you don't owe him an explanation. But if you want a love relationship with somebody, let's say you give instruction to a son whom you love, and you're telling him what to do, but out of your love you describe to him as well the reason why you're telling him to do that. You provide insight into the wisdom behind it, what the goals are, the plans that you have for him, and why, how this all fits. You reveal your heart. And so Jesus does this with the disciples whom he chose for this great adventure of shining love in a world of hate. Yet this great privilege was not based on being smarter or wiser than other people. Look at verse 16. It wasn't you who chose me. as You're so bright because you, you hooked up with me. No, I hooked up with you. I chose you. So it wasn't you who chose me, but I chose you, and here's what I had in mind, Uh, and appointed you to go and produce fruit, fruit that will last. Now, it's probably here that Jesus is especially speaking about evangelism, the fruit of souls, that these men will have the risky assignment of taking the gospel for God's glory to the ends of the earth. And don't miss that little word in this verse, go. Go that you would go and produce fruit. Lasting fruit, then, would be the souls of people that are saved forever through the gospel, people who are invited, then, into the circle of love. Disciples will not be on their own on this, however, because this is too much for them. And so he adds this, whatever you then ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. you get everything you need to do this. And then what is the otherworldly light that the world needs to see? He gives that again as he... Kind of wraps up this whole paragraph in verse 17. Here's my command: never stop loving one another. In fact, I want to say this: that you're not going to stand alone with the world until you stand together with your Christian brothers and sisters. This is a group responsibility. You pray for each other, that you lift each other up. When the disciples are prison in Acts early in Acts, the whole church is together praying for them. right? Peter was in jail. The church is praying for him, this is love. So it's, a, it's together. And so here's what we learn. Abiding, the abiding life is a loving life. This is not something you actually learn from observing branches in a vineyard, by the way. There's no evidence that physical branches ever help each other. But Jesus is pressing beyond the natural metaphor to the spiritual realities of union with Christ. Love in the church flows from all those soul centers, the sanctuaries where Jesus abides. But without Jesus, community is not easy. Let's just say it's impossible, really. We are always confronted with people who don't know how to love back. So we have to learn that loving is where you serve others without any strings. Now, I said I'm going to give you three stories. So we've had one, you've met Vingo, the man who found out he was lavishly loved. Now I want you to meet Oliver, the man no one expected would love anyone back name of the story is The Power of the Powerless, A Brother's Lesson, by Christopher DeFink, high school teacher, brother of Oliver. Wall Street Journal, 1985. I grew up in the house where my brother was on his back in his bed for almost 33 years. In the same corner of his room, under the same window, beside the same yellow walls, Oliver was blind, mute. His legs were twisted. He didn't have strength to lift his head nor the intelligence to learn anything, Oliver was born with severe brain damage, which left him and his body in a permanent state of helplessness. Today, I'm an English teacher, and each time I introduce my class to the play about Helen Keller, The Miracle Worker, I tell my students about Oliver. One day, during my first year of teaching, I was trying to describe Oliver's lack of response, how he'd been spoon-fed every morsel he ever ate, how he never spoke. A boy in the last row raised his hand and said, "Oh, Mister Devink, you mean he was a vegetable?" I stammered for a few seconds. My family and I fed Oliver. We changed his diapers, hung his clothes and bed linens on the basement line in winter, spread them out white and clean, dry on the lawn in, to dry on the lawn in summer. And I always liked to watch the grasshoppers jump on the pillowcases. We bathed Oliver, tickled his chest to make him laugh. Sometimes we left the radio on in his room. We pulled the shade down over his bed in the morning to keep the sun from burning his tender skin. We listened to him laugh as we watched television downstairs. We listened to him rock his arms up and down to make the bed squeak. We listened to him cough in the middle of the night. Well, I guess you could call him a vegetable, but I called him Oliver, my brother. You would have loved him. On October day in 1946, that would have been the, day, the month that I was born, when my mother was pregnant with Oliver, her second son, my father rose from bed, shaved, dressed, and went to work. At the train station, he realized he'd forgotten something, so he returned to the house and discovered the smell of gas leaking from our coal-burning stove. My mother was unconscious in her bed. My oldest brother was sleeping in his crib, which was quite high off the ground, so the gas didn't affect him. My father pulled them out of the room through the hall where my mother revived quickly, and that was that. Six months later, April 1947, the year my wife was born, Oliver was born, a healthy-looking, plump, beautiful boy. Oliver seemed like any other newborn. <clears throat> there was no sign that anything was amiss, but one afternoon, a few months after he was born, my mother brought Oliver to a window. She held him there in the sun, the bright good sun, and there Oliver rested in my mother's arms, and there Oliver looked and looked directly into the sunlight, which was the first moment my mother realized that Oliver was blind. My parents, the true heroes of this story, learned with the passing months that Oliver could not hold up his hands or crawl or or walk or anything. Couldn't hold anything in his hand. He couldn't speak. So they brought Oliver to Mount Sinai Hospital in New York for a full series of tests just to see how bad his condition was. And the only explanation anyone could agree on was that the gas that my mother inhaled in her sleep during that third month of her pregnancy had reached Oliver, caused the severe, incurable, hopeless condition before he was born. At the end of a long week of waiting, my parents returned to the hospital and met with the doctor, Dr. Samuel DeLange, when our children are in pain, we try to heal them. When they are happy, or excuse me, when they are hungry, we feed them. When they are lonely, we comfort them. What can we do for our son? My parents wanted to know. Dr. DeLange said that he wanted to make it very clear to both my mother and father that there was absolutely nothing that could be done for Oliver. He didn't want my parents to grasp at false hope. You could place him in an institution, he said. He said, But my parents replied, he's our son. We will take Oliver home, of course. The good doctor answered, then take him home and love him. And I guess that was sound medical advice. Dr. DeLange speculated Oliver would probably not live beyond the age of seven, maybe eight. He also suggested Oliver be taken to another neurosurgeon to confirm the diagnosis, and that's what my parents did. Yes, the second doctor repeated the first verdict. Oliver's case was hopeless. While he scanned the forms that my parents filled out, the second doctor noted that my mother and father were born in Brussels, which led him to say, you know, during World War II, which hadn't been that long, during World War II, my parents were taken in and fed and protected by a Belgian family, for we were Jews. And now I guess it's my turn to help a Belgian family. And the doctor didn't charge my parents for the tests or the care or the medication." I never met these two doctors, but I loved them all my life, as the child loves the heroes in a fairy tale. Oliver grew to the size of a 10-year-old. He had a big chest, a large head. His hands and feet were those of a 5-year-old, however, small and soft. We'd wrap a box of baby cereal for him at Christmas and place it under the tree. We'd pat his head with a damp cloth in the middle of a July heat wave. As a teacher, I've spent many hours preparing lessons, hoping I can influence my students in some small but significant way. Each year, thousands of books are printed with the hopes that the the authors can move people to action. We, We all labor at the task of raising children or teaching them values, hoping something gets through after all our efforts. Oliver could do none of those. He could do absolutely nothing except breathe and sleep and eat, and yet he was responsible for action, for love, for courage, for insight. For me to have been brought up in a house where a tragedy was turned into joy explains to a great degree why I am the type of husband and father and writer and teacher that I have become. I remember my mother saying when I was small, isn't it wonderful that you can see that you have eyes? And when she said, when you go to heaven, I bet Oliver will run to you and embrace you. And the first thing he will say to you is thank you. Leaves quite an impression on a young boy. And of course, it is I who must thank Oliver and my parents for defining to me the boundaries of love, which were the house and the yards and the woods where we ran and played, and, and all the time Oliver laughed and slept. I remember, too, my mother explained to me that we were blessed with Oliver in ways that were not clear to her at first. We were fortunate that Oliver's case was so severe The best we could do for him was feed him three times a day and bathe him and keep him warm. He didn't need us to be in the room all day. He never knew what his condition was. So often, parents are faced with a child who is severely retarded or is hyperactive, demanding, or wild, who needs constant care. So many people have little choice but to place their child in an institution. Each circumstance is different. No one can judge another. But I have come to believe that we are here to tend to these lilies of the field these twinkling stars of the sky, we should do the best we can. I asked my father one day, how how did you care for Oliver for 32 years? And he said, "It it was not 32 years. I just asked myself, can I feed Oliver today? And the answer was always, yes, I can I remember once I was a little boy sitting down beside my brother. I was alone beside my brother. I was alone in the house and I, I wanted to see if Oliver was really blind, you know, whether he was faking it. So I spread my hands over his face and I shook my fingers close to his open eyes and of course he did not blink or move. His eyes were brown like mine, yet so different. Often it was my job to feed Oliver's supper, a poached egg mixed with cereal, warm milk, sugar, a banana. Yuck, I often thought I would not eat this stuff. But feeding Oliver throughout his life was like feeding an eight-month-old child. His head was always propped up to a slight incline on pillows. A teaspoon of food was brought to his lips. He would open his mouth, close his mouth, and then swallow. And still today, you can hear the sound of the spoon ticking and tapping against the red bowl in the silence of his room. Oh, Mr. Vink, you mean he was a vegetable? And I still remember the words of my student, but I called him Oliver, my brother. When I was in my early 20s, I met a girl. We fell in love. After a few months, I brought her home for dinner and to meet my family. And after the introductions, the small, <coughs> excuse me, the small talk, my mother went to the kitchen to check the meal. And I asked the girl, would you like to see Oliver? For I had, of course, told her about my brother. No, she answered. She didn't want to see him. It was as if she had slapped me in the face. Yet you know, I just said something polite, and I walked to the dining room. And soon after that, I met Roe, Rosemary, a dark-haired, dark-eyed, lovely girl. She asked me the names of my brothers and sisters. She bought me a copy of The Little Prince. She loved children. I thought she was wonderful. I brought her home after a few months to meet my family, introductions, small talk, dinner, all that happened, and then it was time to feed Oliver. I walked into the kitchen, reached for the red bowl and the egg and the cereal and milk and banana and prepared his meal. And then I remembered, I sheepishly asked Roe if she'd like to come upstairs and see Oliver. Sure, she said, and up the stairs we went. I sat at Oliver's bedside as Roe stood and watched over my shoulder. I gave him the first spoonful and the second. Can I do that, she asked, with ease and freedom and compassion. And so I gave her the bowl and she fed Oliver one spoonful at a time. The power of the powerless, which girl would I marry? I married Ro, and I never regret it. Today, Ro and I have three children. When I was a child, I was afraid of the dark. I shared a room with my younger brother. Our room was separated from Oliver's by a single wall. Five inches of wood and plaster divided us from each other during the night. We inhaled the same night air, listened to the same wind. Slowly, without our knowledge, Oliver created a certain power around us, that changed all of our lives. I cannot explain Oliver's influence fully except to say that the powerless in the world do hold great power. Sometimes the weak do confound the mighty. Even now, five years after his death from pneumonia, on March 12, 1980, Oliver still remains the most helpless human being I ever met, the weakest human being I ever met. And yet he was the most powerful human being I ever met. That's the power of both loving and being loved. Now, that's a hard brand of loving. But it's also easier in another way. Loving an Oliver is harder and easier for the same reason. It's harder because you you, you have to keep it up when you can't discern any return for your love, I mean, no thank yous, no hope of improvement, but also that makes it easier because you get up every day without expecting anything. But most people we're called to love could do us a lot of good if they wanted. But they often don't want to, even our Christian brothers and sisters. And even if they did, they'll, they'll never love us back enough to make up for the love we could have had from Jesus if we would just abide in it. You get it? Even the people who try to love you will never love you back enough, can never be Jesus to you, never a vine, it was a branch. You see why abiding has to come before loving. If we don't bask in the knowledge that we are God's beloved child, God's beloved Oliver. If I'm asking you to not, think of yourself as the Christ. Christopher loving the Oliver. Think of you of the Oliver being loved. If you lose this knowledge, you don't bask in this knowledge that God loves you as his dear Oliver, then you're going to expect and pressure someone else in the community to make you feel that way, and they can't because they are not Jesus. And so they bind them to you, and it doesn't work. This is what ruins marriages. This is what ruins, ruins Sunday school classes. This is what destroys ministries. We have to get that reassurance from listening to God's word. Abide in the word. Listen to the voice of Jesus. That's the only place where it comes from. But if you know you are already extravagantly loved beyond anything you ever deserve, that's when you can love others, all the other Olivers, like Jesus loves you, as a friend who unmasks his heart without fear of being destroyed by rejection. It's a friend who lays down his life. as a friend who accepts others as flawed as they are with patience and forgiveness readily extended. Loving can come only after abiding. But now what's next? What we're saying is that the person who has the boldness to stand up against hatred thats going to be step three has first learned the boldness of risky love. Even within the family of faith, it's only then that we are ready to be hated without losing our happiness. So here we go. The branch before the world. Hatred. The disciples need to be prepared for it. Will they go to their deaths gladly and bravely, standing for the truth? enriched by the love that bound them to Jesus the vine, or will they despise the cost and will they deny Jesus like a Peter or perhaps flee from the soldiers when they come to arrest Jesus? And the answer is yes, both ways. They will all fail that night, and a Peter will weep bitter tears. But they will all learn the joy of suffering like Jesus and for Jesus later. Because he has told them how. So Jesus first tells them not to take the hatred personally. The hatred they will get is a hatred built on the world's rejection of Jesus. So Jesus starts with this. Verse 18. Whenever you find the world hating you, realize that hated me first. It's not you, it's me. Jesus doesn't spell out the many reasons the world might oppose them. actually gives just one reason. When he gets down to verse 22 and follow, it's that Jesus exposed their sin. Just as the early preachers would have to do. Now, if you could just avoid the you're a sinner part of the gospel, people wouldn't get so upset. Sin calls for God, talking about God's wrath, God's judgment, hell. The worldlings don't don't want to hear that God demands obedience. Using standards of right and wrong that condemn things, condemn things that the world loves. Uh, This is not a popular way to talk to people. Jesus alone can save you. They don't like that. That's not PC. If people don't follow Jesus, they don't know God. People, you know, they think you're just arrogant and bigoted to a a hateful degree when we say that. No wonder they hate us. Actually, I get it. (laughs) But there's actually something much deeper lying underneath all of that. Like they're reacting to your message. Well, there's something hardwired in a lost heart. The sinner has no love for God. It's not that they just reacted to your offensive, humbling message. It's because hatred was already in their heart, but before you ever rode into town. Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. And this deep-seated aversion to God and His authority and this insane exaltation of ourselves were in all of our hearts. Until God snatched us out of the darkness of our rebellion and emancipated us by the light. And so Jesus says, if you're associated with despised me and you, if you preach the message, the same despised message, you know you're going to get hated just as I am. And so look, you're not going to find a way to frame or spin the gospel, not the real gospel, that's going to circumvent this anger and hatred. It's just inbuilt. And so why do it? Because God has sheep out there. <laughs> and you're going to love them. Because you are so satisfied with Jesus that you want all his sheep to be found and to join that great chorus of those who honor and enjoy him. And that's why it's worth all the hatred. And so verse 19 says, if you belong to the world, the world would love you as it's one of its own. But because you don't belong to the world, as they can see that you're marching by a, a total different tune, a, a, an alien set of values where you love God and each other in, in a crazy kind of way. And in fact, he says, I chose you out of the world. You belong to me instead, but used to be into it. Don't get so proud. But I got you out of it, and that's why the world hates you. Don Carson says, the world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king, to whom all loyalty is due. Verse 20. Remember the thing I told you. Is verse 20 up there? Yeah, there it is. Remember the thing I told you. Back in chapter 13, verse 16. A servant isn't greater, that is, deserves no better treatment than his master. And that one, it was like, if I have washed feet, then are, are you so superior that you can't do what I did? In this case, it's different. It's the treatment that he gets. So, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you as well. If they've kept my word, which of course they didn't, only a relative few, they'll keep yours too. But they're going to do all the things to you on account of my name. Back to his main point. Because, now get this, they don't know the one who sent me. That's to the deepest point. They hate God and don't know him. Now people might delude themselves into thinking they're doing God a favor by persecuting and killing you. But that's just a delusion. This ugly, damnable problem of the human heart. There's no place in it for the love of God. Not until God chooses them and pulls them out of that selfish rebellion. Now why is it that people can't feel love when they hear about Jesus? Well, it's pride, it's guilt, it's the blindness from the God of this world. Look at verse 22. If I hadn't come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. Now, he's talking in in very broad generalities and extremes here. Doesn't mean they wouldn't have had any sin. But he says, but now they have no excuse for their sin. This is accountability. When Jesus spoke and did wonders and then they refused him, he made people accountable in a profound way. And he was not just exposing their sin, he was exposing their stubbornness. And in fact, in doing this in front of them and then still wanting to crucify him, he confirmed in those hearers the worst of sins, rejection of God's Son and rebellion against the Father who sent him. This is serious guilt beyond all, beyond all other guilt. Because, verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father too. You can't just say, well, I get rid of Jesus, but I'll still have God. No, no. Verse 24, if I hadn't done among them the works no other person had ever done, they would, have, they would have no sin. There's accountability again. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And then Jesus adds one last reason that they are guilty because very, the very, their very scriptures condemn them, ironically, by contending that there is no justifiable excuse for their hatred. Look at verse 25, yet this only fulfills the thing that stands written in their law from the Psalms, possibility of a couple of different places, especially Psalm 69, because it was regarded generally as messianic. They hated me for no good reason. They had no excuse for it. But now don't forget the reason Jesus shares all this with his men. It was to prepare them for coming hatred so that they could face it with joy, just as Jesus faces the cross with joy. As the writer of Hebrews put it, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so now a third story. We met Vingo, the man who discovered lavish love. We met Oliver, the man who could not be expected to love. And now we meet two hated men who should have been doubled over in defeat and ready to dump wrath on their enemy. This is from Dr. Luke. call this Jailbird Singing. We stayed in Philippi many days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the gate and down to the riverside where we supposed... There was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who regularly came together there. One particular woman listened more intently to our words, Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of purple goods who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to the preaching of Paul so that she was baptized with her entire household. She said, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, please come stay at my house. She prevailed upon us. Weeks later, while walking to the place of prayer, We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, whose soothsaying had made her owners rich. She followed us, crying, these men are servants of the Most High God. Day after day, louder and louder, the child shouted, they proclaim to you the way of salvation. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned and said to the spirit, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And that very hour, the spirit came out and left her. But when her owners discovered that the source of their riches was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rostrum in the rulers. These men are Jews, they declared to the city magistrates. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. The crowd had gathered and now lent their more violent voices to these accusations we have been watching the news and things that go on, you can see how this could happen. The magistrates therefore commanded that the garments be torn from Paul and Silas and that they both be beaten with rods. The command was carried out. Lictors inflicted many blows on the backs of the accused and then threw them in prison and charged the jailer to keep them under closest custody. The jailer took them into the inner prison where he locked their feet in the stocks. Now, I want to pause for just a minute, hold that picture. Paul and Silas, shamed, you know, stripped, beaten severely with, you know, like baseball bats. And they're sitting in the deepest part of the dungeon in the dark, feet in stock, sleepless at midnight. And what are they doing? What would you be doing? So here's Luke. In the darkness of the night... Paul and Silas prayed and sang hymns so loudly to God that the rest of the prisoners woke and listened to them. They are singing praises. They are singing praises to the Lord who allowed them to suffer. The servants of the gospel were full of joy, just as Jesus had promised, exactly as Jesus had promised. And so Luke goes on, at midnight, an earthquake hit the city, shaking the foundations of the prison and flinging open all the doors. Everyone's fetters also broke open. When the jailer was roused and found the doors open, he drew his sword and he prepared to fall on the point of it, certain that the prisoners had escaped. Pause again. Paul and Silas could have stood back and returned evil for evil, hatred for hatred. Watch that jailer commit suicide and walked out with all the prisoners in triumph. But no, they rescued this man and welcomed him into the family of faith. This was a greater miracle than the earthquake. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, "'Don't harm yourself. We are all still here.' And the jailer called for lights and then rushed in. Trembling with fear, he first fell down before Paul and Silas and then brought them out of the prison and said, "'Tell me, tell me, what must I do to be saved?' And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And immediately they spoke the word of the Lord to him. He took them that same hour of the night to his house where he washed their wounds. Some ways my favorite phrase in the whole thing, he washed their wounds. He learned right out of the gate to love one another. And then he and his household all were baptized. He set food before them, and now get this word, rejoicing that he believed in God. Joy has found a new heart. So let me end this. How did these two hated men actually sing to the Lord as well as love the man who hurt them? Why, Why didn't... Why didn't hatred and ill-treatment rob them of their joy and of their love? Well, you don't sing in jails and you don't love the jailer unless something completely unnatural is going on deep inside. It's nothing less than the inner presence of a suffering, joyful Jesus with whom these two men remained. They abided in Christ. Some of you, after this message, you may want to run to your neighbor and apologize, feeling ashamed that you have never been bold enough to share the good news. But first, you should run to Jesus and apologize for thinking so little of him that you wouldn't want someone else to know about him. And run to the Father. Talk to him about withholding fruit of his delight. Yeah, me too. But abiding comes first. But your suffering is coming. Hard hatred is coming upon us. Where will you find a song when they have tried to beat the living joy out of you? Verse 11. I have told you these things so that the joy I have can be in you and your joy might become full. Full means all you could possibly contain, all you were always meant to have. Therefore, singing when suffering, therefore, loving the jailer, this is not a personality trait, this is not normal, this is Christianity at its truest and best. Pray with me. I'm going to turn a song into a prayer, so you might know this song, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And I ask this to God on our behalf. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Shall I not? Shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face, dear God? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me unto God? Of course not. And so, dear God, sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase our courage, Lord. Then we will bear the toil and endure the pain supported by your word. And so, here we are, dear Father. If we can endure and brave the threatening presence of you, our holy God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, why in the world do mere mortals intimidate us? Oh, God Almighty, increase our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.